That's the message of the gospel, that we are free because of what Christ did for us. That he died for us, and then he rose again and says, you can have the same power in your life, and you will rise with me one day. That is good news. That is great news. Praise be to God. Well, I'm glad you guys are here today. Uh, I'm really glad to be here today as well. Um, you know, I go away for two weeks, and suddenly I find out we're in the middle of the fourth quarter, and we got the Ark of the Covenant up there, and if I come back next week and there's an altar and lambs and goats, I'm out of here. So um, I better not leave town anymore, I guess. Anyway, I was in Guatemala for the last two weeks, and uh, or the last two Sundays with Sean and, and our team, and man, it was a great time. Uh, this has been one of our best trips down there. Pastor Kevin got to go with us, and we got to do so much ministry and so many a diverse number of things. It was truly amazing what God did uh, in the time we were there. And so I want to say thank you to the church, uh, all of you, for supporting us, for supporting the team, and, and we're just really excited about our partnership down there and many more years uh, uh, of partnership with them. In fact, me and Sean are talking about going down there possibly several times um, this year. But I would encourage you, if you see someone who you know went on the trip, uh, go and talk to them. Ask them what they saw. What did God do? What ministry were they a part of? And they will be glad to tell you. Um, so thank you. And hey, uh, as Sean said, it's Father's Day. So happy Father's Day to everyone out there who is a dad or who serves as a dad for, for other folks. Um, I'd encourage you, just love people like God has loved us as a father. Try to bring that in and love your kids that way. Love those that you mentor that way. Um, Father's Day is such a cool thing, I think. Uh, but, you know, my favorite thing this week was my birthday. Friday was my birthday. My wife did some special things for me, and I turned 40. Oof. Hey, thank you. <laughs> uh, I'm thankful God's given me this uh, much time on the earth, and uh, I've just been reflecting with about that, and I just hope I can serve him for for 40 more years of my life. Um, but me being 40 makes our topic today of the resurrection all that much more important because it's a whole lot closer. Uh, so let's look at 1 Corinthians 15. <clears throat> uh, quick story, when I was a kid, my pastor turned 40, and they had a big party for him, and they wheeled in a casket uh, in the middle of the service, and they opened it up, and they had given him new golf clubs, which was kind of funny, but <laughs> anyway... That wasn't in the notes. That's a, that's freebie. All right. So last week, Pastor Kevin, chapter or Pastor Robert, First Corinthians chapter fifteen, we talked about the resur resurrection, the absolute necessity of the resurrection to the gospel. If we don't have the resurrection, we don't have anything. We got words on a page that don't mean anything. Okay. And in fact, if we look at the work of Christ. Every part of his life, everything that he did, there's four indispensable things. One is his life. If he did not live a perfect life, he could not have been the perfect sacrifice. He could not have obtained righteousness from the Father to give to us. Then secondly, he takes his life that's perfect, the perfect sacrifice, and he dies. Without his death in our place, we're still under the condemnation of our sin. And then comes the resurrection. If Jesus didn't raise from the grave, then everything he said is untrue, false, and there is no hope. 
And finally, Jesus ascended to the Father, and now he sits at the right hand of God, and he makes intercession for us, and he says, subjecting everything to his reign. Without any of this, the gospel is worthless. It takes all of these pieces. And so today, again, we're going to focus on that third piece of the resurrection. So if you look at, if you remember from 1 Corinthians 15, 12, Paul tells us that some of the Corinthians were denying the resurrection. They said it didn't happen, right? Or it's not going to happen, I mean. Uh, and as Paul mentioned in 1514, as we've said, if that's true, then we have no hope. We will die and that's it. We will be in our sins and we will be condemned by God. And yet we know that it was a historical fact that Jesus rose from the grave. As 1 Corinthians 15, 6 and 7 tells us, over 500 people saw him after he resurrected, including 12 of the apostles. And, uh, and on top of that, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, just because it's so strange, uh, Matthew 27, 52 through 53, Jesus wasn't the only one that raised from the dead. There was other saints that came alive after Jesus rose. They came alive in Jerusalem, and it says they walked around and appeared to people. So not only did Jesus raise from the grave, but so did other saints to show us that, guess what? If you're a follower of Jesus, you'll be raising with him. They were the first fruits, and I think that is just so cool, another proof of the resurrection. Though there are still some in the Corinthian church who are denying the resurrection. And so Paul this week, as we look at the second half of chapter 15, is going to continue to argue against those that think there's no resurrection. Okay, 1 Corinthians 15.35 is where we'll start. And Paul gives us two questions that he's going to answer. He says, the people are saying, well, how are the dead raised? Right, so we're going to deal with that. Also, he says, well, with what kind of bodies are they coming? Okay, they're, they're denying that this is possible. And then finally, Paul is going to exhort us how to live in light of the truth of the coming resurrection. Now, a quick hint, Paul actually deals with these questions in reverse order. Okay, he lists them here in this order, but he actually flips them on us. So we're going to look at what kind of bodies are the dead raised with first. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, 39 through four, or 35 through uh, 49. I'll read it for us. <coughs> Here's what it says. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, and there is another kind for animals, and another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another kind. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and the glory of the stars, for stars differ from star and glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. 
But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those of, who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Amen and praise be to God. Father, thank you for your word this morning. I pray that you would open it to us, that you give us understanding of what Paul has written by your Holy Spirit, and that we would be encouraged in the resurrection, Father. In the name of Christ, amen. All right, so Paul begins dealing with these objections that the Corinthians has raised. How are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come with? Now, these are not bad questions in and of themselves. Many of you have probably asked this. But they receive a really harsh rebuke from Paul because it's coming out of a heart that is denying the resurrection based on earthly wisdom. Okay, they're not thinking spiritually. If you remember the Corinthians, this whole letter have prided themselves on how spiritual they actually are. And yet, here again, they're missing the boat. They think they're not thinking spiritually about the resurrection. So Paul says, you fools. Come on, guys. You're asking the wrong question. Not thinking spiritually and leaving God out of the picture. I imagine the Corinthians were thinking of something more along the lines of a zombie apocalypse, right? Or if you're over 40 like me, tales from the crypt. Uh, this, these dead bodies that were coming to life, they, they knew how bodies decomposed quickly, and they're thinking, well, how's that thing coming back to life? Right? They, could, they couldn't understand the resurrection physically, and so they were throwing out its possibilities. And I want to make a quick application here for our generation. Is that we live in a very scientific age. Okay? We want to understand how, how everything works, and I get it. And many times, if we can't understand how something works scientifically, we're, we're tempted to just disregard it as untrue. So many times we discount spiritual truth because of its apparent uh, unprovable nature. But to do so would be to fall into the same error as these Corinthians. Just because we don't understand something like this resurrection does not make it untrue. And furthermore, when you add God to any equation, there's a lot of possible solutions. So let's, the Corinthians have left God out of their equation for the resurrection. It's a lack of faith in the creator God that made those bodies. And furthermore, God has already raised Jesus from the dead, giving proof. Right? We just talked about that. So why are the, the Corinthians asking this question in unbelief? May maybe some of you are there today with them. Maybe you've always thought, ah, it seems really far-fetched, right? I don't know about people coming back from the dead. But I want us to be open to what the Holy Spirit can teach us through this text, okay? And so let's come to this text as children and just say, so yeah, what will our resurrected bodies look like? That's a good question, right? Let's hear what Paul has to say, a couple things. First, he says, our future body is related to our current body, okay? Now, that's really good news for some people and really bad for others. Paul wants the Corinthians to know that your body now is important. Okay, they were tempted to say, I just need to get rid of this body so I can live the spiritual life. And people throughout generations have said that, different religions and different things. But Paul's making a case that our current body has bearing on the one to come. 
In fact, our future body comes directly from this one. And it's important that the Christian life is not about getting rid of this body so much, so much as living to be a part of the kingdom in this body now. As believers in Jesus, we've been included in the kingdom of God, and God asks us to begin to grow into what we are. Right? We've been set free as we just sung, now live as if you are free and a part of the kingdom. And he communicates the continuity of this body with the future in the form of a picture. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 36, and 38. First, he gives us a picture of a seed and a plant. Paul tells us that this body, when it dies, it's like a seed planted in the ground. The seed sprouts up, and the new plant begins to grow as the seed dies away, and then the new plant grows into a big, beautiful plant of God's design. Now, me and my boys, we pride ourselves in being farmers of a very small plot of ground behind our garage. Um, And it's fun to see seeds sprout. I'm sure you've done this. You've put it in a cup, right, in your fifth grade science project, and you see it sprout. And what you see is that that sproutling comes up, and the first leaves, what do they look like? They look like the seed it just came from, right? And then suddenly when that new set of leaves comes, it looks like a different plant. Sometimes even when that seed comes up, it's still got the husk or the the shell of the seed on it, right? Some of those leaves, sometimes it's hanging on there. And Paul's saying, this is what happens to us when we die, right? Our, our, Our bodies are important. They're the seeds for the future body. You die and you put it in the ground, and yet God is going to raise it in a new plant. And so for the Christian, this is good news. Death is not the end for the Christian, but rather the beginning of something much better, as we're going to see. The gospel, it it takes death and it just turns it over. Where the world is so worried about death, death is all around us, it's awful. I agree with you, it's awful. And yet the gospel turns it over and says, you know what? This is actually the best thing that could happen for you. You're actually, this is the last part of your sanctification. You begin to live like Jesus now, you begin to live in it, your body passes away so that God can redeem it and make it something brand new. Just as a seed is tilled in the earth, our bodies are placed in the earth, ready to sprout and blossom at Christ's return into something much more glorious. Now, for some of us, it's just that it takes longer to germinate than others. And yet there's continuity between the seed planted and the plant produced. It's not so much as two different things as two forms of the same. I think we can see this a little bit when you... you, all of us have seen babies. If you knew the baby Jared, the nine-month-old Jared, uh, I, he kind of looked like me. He, he talked a little bit like me, but he didn't really. Uh, but the 40-year-old Jared is much different, and yet we're the same, right? We're the same. There's continuity, and yet there is difference. And so Paul is telling us that you will be you in the resurrection, though much better than your current wrinkled and seed self. Secondly, Paul uses another analogy from nature to teach us what our bodies will look like fitted for the new reality of God's eternal kingdom. He does this by considering the different kinds of plants and animals and heavenly bodies, different things. This part can be a little confusing. Um, But what Paul is telling us in 1 Corinthians 15, 39 through 41, if you want to look, is that he's mentioning God-designed animals Uh, a certain way to live in a particular environment. So he designed fish to live in the sea, 
and birds to live in, in the air and, and people to do what people do on the earth. And then beyond that, he made the sun to do what the sun does and the moon to do what it does. And so God needs to do something to our bodies so that we are fitted to live in a spiritual place. Okay, that's what he's telling us with this. And I think as a side note here, Paul is giving a nod to God's particular nature in creation or his particular creation. He created humans, animals with particular physical characteristics to deal in particular physical spaces that he has made. This wasn't happen chance. It wasn't evolutionary necessity, but rather a particular meticulous act of the hand of God into creation to create beings and things for particular purposes and places. And Paul is saying, just like God did that, he needs to transform your body to be fitted to, to live with him in his eternal kingdom. Our bodies will be the same, and yet they will be different. They need to be transformed. And guess what? Our future body is going to be way better. Way, way better. Look at the contrast that Paul drew, draws there in um, 15 verses 42 through 49. He has all these contrasts about our, our body now and our future body. And what we'll see is our bodies will be way better. And that's good news for a lot of us. First, he says, our, the old body is sown perishable, yet the new body is raised imperishable. From the time of Adam, our sin, the sin of humanity, it's condemned us to death. This means that when you were born, you were stamped with an expiration date, like it or not. We all die as a consequence of our sin. We're slowly decaying like a piece of fruit in a bowl. We're souring milk in the fridge, perishable, to be thrown out. But our new bodies, it says, will be sinless and eternal, no expiration date, imperishable, not going away. He also says our old body is sown in dishonor, and yet the new body is raised in glory. We can all live decent lives, and yet we die. Dishonorable. All the accomplishments of man in the end go away with him in death. Furthermore, we all commit dishonorable deeds in our body when we sin. And yet he says our new bodies will be glorious, reflecting the power and the glory of God, fitted for good works, everlasting works. The old body is sown in weakness. The new body is raised in power. We all feel the growing weakness in our own bodies through the years. We tire. We lose strength. Our eyes go bad. We begin to forget things. We, like the disciples in the garden, were willing to do the work of God, and yet our body is weak. And yet he says we will live in power. We will run without ceasing. We will not tire. We will have the perfect strength to live and do the good things of God. And then these next few contrasts go together. He talks about that our old body is so natural. The new body is raised spiritual. The old body is of the dust. The new body is of heaven. He's saying there's a distinction from this world you know and the world to come. We've been fitted to live on this earth and we need to be fitted to live eternally with Christ. It says Adam was our father, gave us our natural body, and yet the last Adam, Christ, becomes our spiritual father, giving spiritual life. 
The old body bears the image of Adam, and the new body bears the image of Christ. We need a transformation of our lives and our body so that we can live with Christ. So our bodies will be transformed into a new body specifically designed to inhabit God's kingdom. He's saying, you foolish Corinthians, don't you know the power of God? Don't you know the promises? You will be you and God will raise you up in power to live with him. Now, I think we see a tangible example of this in Jesus, right? When Jesus comes back, it was Jesus, but guess what? Not everybody recognized Jesus. They didn't know it was him at first. And I think this probably speaks to his transformed body. Maybe he, hadn't, he didn't look like he had aged like he had in the previous self. He was transformed, and yet he was touchable. He ate with the disciples. He talked. He fellowshiped with them, and yet he was different. We know that he would appear and disappear at random. And he ascended to heaven. And yet there was continuity as his hands and his feet were scarred eternally to remind us of his sacrifice for us. This body matters. That body matters. I think Paul transitions here in 1 Corinthians 15, 50. Look at what he says. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. What Paul is telling us is that if you want to live forever with Christ, there is a fundamental transformation that must happen to you. And that starts with the gospel. The Bible consistently witnesses to the fact that we are dead in our sins. We are separated from God. There is a separation from us because of our sins. And without that being removed, we will never live with God. We will be permanently separated from Him. In fact, the Bible speaks of the fact that all people from all time will be resurrected from the dead, but some to eternal life and some to eternal death. The Bible is saying everybody's going to live forever, but not everybody's going to live with God. Jesus says this in John 5, 28 and 29. He says, An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, and they will come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of the life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so we will all live forever, but we will not all live with Jesus. And so we need a transformation if we are going to live with him. This is exactly what John chapter 3, Jesus is telling Nicodemus. You need to be born of the water and the spirit, Nicodemus. You need to be born of that, that, that earthly father, and you need to be born of your spiritual father. You need to be reborn if you want to live in the kingdom of God. Paul has said, just like the first Adam, Adam himself, the earthly man, and the last Adam, Christ, who is our spiritual father. And Romans tells us how you can be spiritually reborn. Romans 10, 9, you must confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Just even there, the resurrection is indispensable. It's part of how you become a believer in Jesus. Now, here's the good news. Here's what happens when you do that. I think this, this tells us how the resurrection works a little bit. When you confess Jesus as Lord, the Holy Spirit then indwells your life. That's God living inside of you. 
He comes and he, he cleanses you from all your sins, as Ezekiel 36 tells us. You are forgiven. In fact, he takes your sin and he exchanges it for Jesus' righteousness. So God then looks at you as if you did the perfect work of Christ. You are accepted, free, seen as righteous and holy. And the Spirit gives you a new heart that beats for the things of God. You want to will and you want to do the things that God has asked us to do. And the rest of your Christian life is a process of growing in love for God and growing in the things that he has asked us to do. We call this sanctification, right? This is resurrected life. We get to experience it now, and it points to what's going to happen later. Many of you were lost in your sin. You knew what it was like to be far from God, and yet God saved you, and now you know what it's like to be with him. Your life has been resurrected from a shambles, and that's a picture of even the greater resurrection to come. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. And here's the cool thing. When you die, guess who's resident in you? The Spirit of the living God. And just like Jesus, it is the Spirit that is able to raise you to new life after death. Ephesians 1.14 tells us that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit in salvation. He is our deposit guaranteeing that we will receive our inheritance, which is eternal life. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. This is actually what we celebrate and what we picture in baptism, that you are being buried in Christ's death, meaning we place our life, our sin on Christ and on his death on the cross, and we go under the waters as if we are being buried in the dirt, only then again to raise in the power of Christ as a new believer in Jesus that pictures our future resurrection. So if you want to inherit the kingdom of God, if you want eternal life, if you want to be free as we were singing earlier, if you want to rise from the grave one day, have eternal life, it's only found in Jesus and salvation in him. And today's a really good day to start that new life. So I'd encourage you, if you don't know Jesus, today's the day. Come and confess him. We can help you do that. So Paul has answered his second question first. What kind of bodies do we have? Now he's going to go on and answer his first question. How are the dead raised? Okay, look with me at 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 57. Here's what he says. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Now we can see this similar scene described by Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. And in verse 16 there, Paul points out that guess what? It's Jesus himself that returns and he commands the resurrection and the transformation of believers. Paul is telling the Corinthians, you want to know how the resurrection is going to happen? It's going to happen by the power and command of God. 
guys have been discounting what God can do. Jesus will return suddenly with trumpets and great fanfare, command the dead in Christ to raise and be transformed in their new bodies, and believers that are left will be transformed in an instant and everybody will meet in the sky. And that is going to be a really, really good day. Really good day. I mean, can you imagine the moment that the, the spiritual world just tears the sky open and enters our world? The dead come to life. John tells us in 1 John 3, 2, as he's thinking about this, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. That is amazing. The Corinthians want to know how this is going to happen, and here it is. Jesus is going to make it happen. The Corinthians were denying the resurrection. They had discounted the power of God to make it happen. Not only will it happen, but he has already done it in the person of Christ. Now Paul continues. Look at verses 54 through 57. He says, When the perishable puts on imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the great hope of the gospel, that death will be defeated. When we are raised to new life, Jesus, having finally conquered our greatest enemy, no more sin in your life. No more sickness in your life. No more going to funerals and seeing your loved ones and your friends pass away. Perishable people becoming imperishable. And then we can stand in the power of Christ and mock death. Oh, death, where's your victory? Where's your sting? It is gone. It is gone. It is gone. And I want you to see that the, the resurrection, this has always been the greatest Christian hope. This is the event that where we are finally transformed, finally saved. Our salvation begins when we confess Christ and we receive the Spirit and we begin to be transformed. And this is a picture of our ultimate salvation, our ultimate transformation at the resurrection. And so Christians throughout the years have looked forward to this day. They have died in hope of this day. There's thousands and millions of Christians buried across this globe waiting for God's command to say, come awake. This is where we are finally transformed and our salvation is complete. 1 Peter 1, 3-5 says, We are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That means that's, that's what's happened, and so we have hope to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept for you in heaven, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for our salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. And it's going to be a good day when God comes and He transforms all of us. Just this week, a, a good friend of mine that I grew up with, her mom passed away, uh, and she was a godly woman. 
She, she trusted in the Lord her, lo- her whole life. She worked to make her home marked by the gospel. She strived to love others in the love of Christ, and she died trusting one day that Jesus would resurrect her body. And she, and that is good news, right? We, we can go to funerals as Christians of other brothers and sisters and say, Oh, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? It hurts now, but it won't. In fact, my mom said at the funeral as she went, it was a friend of hers, and she said, I love going to a funeral and feeling like I've been to church. So they praised Jesus. They celebrated a life well lived in Christ. And they look forward to the resurrection. There is great hope for us in the coming resurrection. There is great hope for us in the gospel. Don't miss that. Now look back at 1 Corinthians 15, 56 through 57. Paul gives us like the shortest theological summary of all time. It's like the quickest theological lesson that you can pack into one sentence, okay? So here's what it is. I want to unpack it just for a second. Paul, Paul, after taunting death, says this no longer has any sting. And then he tells us a little bit about death, sin, and the law, okay? Verse 56, he says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So what's he talking about? Okay, the sting of death is sin. We all know that humanity was condemned to death because of our sin. It's our sin is the reason that we die. We die because of our sin. And if we die in our sin apart from Christ, we're eternally condemned. We are truly dead. And so Paul is telling us that it is the sting of death is sin. And then secondly, he tells us that the power of sin is the law. We know that the law was given. It was good. God gave his law so that his people could draw near to him, right? And yet it revealed what our sin was. And in fact, God tell, or Paul tells us that it, it made our sin come alive. In fact, we saw how fall, far we had fallen short and we just sinned all the more. And so the law empowers our sin and brings about our death. And yet Paul tells us the answer to this equation in verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul has told us what our bodies will look like. He's told us how the resurrection's going to happen. And so now we have some work to do. If these things are true, then we should live truly differently. Okay? Look at what he says in verse 58. Here's our response. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brothers... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul ends chapter 15 as he began. In light of the resurrection, he wants the Corinthians to hold fast to the gospel. It's an essential piece of the gospel. If you don't have this, you don't have anything. And he wants them to keep working for the kingdom because it is not in vain if the resurrection is true. I want to just give us a couple responses that we can have to the resurrection today. If we believe the resurrection today, then there are some different ways we should live. So first, don't just live for today, right? But live for tomorrow. We have a really good tomorrow coming. That means hold things loosely today, right? As Americans, we try to set up our own little kingdom here on earth, and man, we try to guard it as best we can. But the gospel says it's going away and a better kingdom's coming. Why don't you live in that one? 
So hold things loosely. Secondly, the resurrection teaches us that we can live life free of a fear of death. Okay? The, re- the resurrection transforms our fear into faith. Paul says in Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. That means everything I do is good. I got faithful, good work now, and in the future I'll be with God and doing good things there. I don't have to worry about death. Elsewhere he says, what can man do to me? It's been the Christian conviction over the years. They have lived this out. They have run into the dangerous places. They have helped the sick and the poor. They, they have had no regard for their life because they know that they have a future life coming. And we would do really well to learn from that example. And finally, I think this is my favorite one. I think if, the re- if we believe the resurrection is true, then man, burn this body up, baby. Just burn it up in service to Jesus. Wear it out. God has given you life, ability, time, resources. Wear it out in the name of Jesus. When you lay down, make sure it's done. Batteries are out because we know we got a new set coming. And here's the great promise. Ben, you can come on up. Everything you do for Jesus will not be in vain. Galatians 6, 8, and 9 tells us that if we keep sowing spiritual things, one day we will reap a spiritual reward. It is coming and it won't be in vain, and it will be really, really good. So as we come to a time of communion today, part of what we pledge in our communion is that we would continue in our Christian walk, just like what Paul's asking here. Continue in faith, diligently living out the Christian life until he comes, as it says, and we see our bodies transformed. As the band begins to play, I want to read you Paul. I think Paul exhibits this uh, attitude for us best. This is one of my favorite passages in Scripture in Philippians 3, starting in verse 8. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, and I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in death, that by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained it or that I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, I forget what lies behind and I strain on towards what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. As we come to prepare for communion, this morning. This is a, a family time. First Corinthians chapter 11 says that it was about them gathering together to celebrate what Jesus had done for them. It is a cool thing. Many of you will gather with family today. It's Father's Day and there's hardly anything I enjoy more than sitting around a table with my family, right? My family's dispersed all over the country today. I won't see them, but I get to be with you. 
church has been my family for decades. And gathering together with God's people makes my heart rejoice. And that's what we get to do together in communion today. Now, he tells us when we gather, right, like a family, you know, you, we sit around a table as a family. We want to all get along, right? That's, that's on our hearts. Sometimes it just isn't that way. You feel that today, some of you, right? But Jesus knows this better than anybody. And he says, look it, when you come together, let's make sure, first of all, you're right with me. Confess your sins to me. Make sure, indeed, you're his child. This is about saying, I belong to Jesus. Give your heart to him first. But then give your heart to each other. Make sure you're getting along around the table, right? Confess your sins to God. If there's people you're at odds with, confess that to God and get that right. He says, do those two things, and then you'll come and do this in a worthy way, right? And it matters to God, because he said, some of you, in 1 Corinthians 11, going back a few weeks ago, some of you are really sick and might even die because you aren't living a holy life, especially as you gather around the communion table. So let's take this moment seriously. Let's take a few minutes, maybe just a couple minutes, confess our sins to God. And if you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, this would be a great time to do that. Say, Jesus, I am sorry. I received what you did for me. Be my Savior. And then celebrate and take communion with us today. All right? Let's, let's come together as a family. So let's take a moment just in prayer. Father, that you are the perfect Father who looks at us and knows us and loves us and in your Son receives us as your children. And you tell us to gather around a table together as your holy people, forgiven and cleansed struggling with sin and yet walking in the gospel as forgiven people to celebrate what Jesus did in his death and burial and resurrection on our behalf. And so we come together now before you, Daddy in heaven, and say thank you. Thank you for your son. Thank you for what he did. Thank you you get to do this together around a table for the family of God present with us in these moments, and we pray in Jesus' name.